the cross. So this week we uh, come to the conclusion of the beginning of John. We're going to start reading in chapter 4, verse 43, rereading a few verses that we read from last week and then finishing up the rest of chapter 4. Words on the screen, uh, printed in your orders of service, or of course you can look them up in your pew Bibles or your Bibles at home. John, under the inspiration of the Spirit, continues his gospel by writing, After the two days, the two days he spent in Samaria, Jesus departed for Galilee, for Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. When the man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, unless you all see signs and wonders, You all will not believe. The official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, Go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And he himself believed in all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So of all of the things that this past year has exposed in us that I've thought about and struggled with was that ongoing question of who do you trust and who do you believe? What voices of authority do you allow to speak into your life, and what voices do you question or wonder about? Again, throughout this year, it didn't matter where it was coming from, whether a politician or someone from any media outlet or a friend on social media, when they would make a particular statement or a claim, it was almost always responded to with many other voices that said, who are you to say that? Where did you get that information? Did you consider this source? Or why should I believe what it is that you're saying? And again... Those questions were highlighted, and I've thought about them a lot as of late, but they certainly are not new questions. It's been a long time, and it always has been that challenge. Who do you trust? Why do you trust them? What words do you believe, and what ones do you question and doubt and dig into, and what do you need before 
you will believe or trust certain voices. And in some ways, those questions are really good to be asking, but in other ways, they can reveal a lot about who we are. And in many ways, those are the kinds of questions that lie behind the text that we just read from John. Again, to set the broader context, as, as we learned last week, Jesus had been in the south, in the region of Judea, and he was making his way back north to Galilee. And as he returns to Cana in this story, in essence, he, he's made a, a loop in the initial part of his ministry. And in that loop, we've, we've met a number of different people, and we've seen Jesus in a number of different contexts. We, we saw him in Cana, uh, pr- turning water into wine at a wedding. And then we saw him go down into Jerusalem, where he cleansed the temple, driving out the money changers and those selling sacrifices in the temple space. That led him to meet with Nicodemus, a, a great Jewish leader, someone prominent in the religious community where Jesus told him he had to be born again. After that, Jesus went to the Judean countryside where he was growing in popularity. And because he was growing in popularity, that drove him out again up north. But he first went through Samaria where he had this conversation with the woman at the well. And now he's back in Cana. That place where he did that first miracle which allows us to see a bit of a parallel between what he does right here and and the miracle that he performed back then. And it kind of does bring to a conclusion this first chunk of John that's been asking this question, who is this Jesus? And who needs him? What do they need him for? And in this scene, now we meet another new person, from another segment in society. We are introduced right away to, as it says in verse 46, an official. Now, once again, as typical, we hear those words, an official, and to us, that doesn't mean a whole lot. We're like, okay, he's an official. But back then, that would have revealed a good amount about who this person was. To say that he was an official suggests that he could have come from the royal classes or been royalty himself. It means that just like Nicodemus was a person of means and power and connections in the religious world, he had those same kinds of means, power, and connections in the political world. He would have been in the upper classes of society. He would have had all the power and the the finances that you would want. And therefore, just like today, he would have been the envy of many people saying, boy, this person has, has all the blessings, all the benefits of society as an official in the government. But what's more important to the story is not his title and identification as an official, but really his identification as a father, as the dad of this son who is deathly ill. His son, so sick that as soon as he learns that Jesus is back in Cana, he knows he needs to leave Capernaum and to find Jesus there. Now, just so that we understand something that I had to learn this week is the way that that's set up almost suggests that the Cana, the city of Cana and Capernaum were, were right next to each other, but they weren't. Uh, Different commentaries said different things. The shortest distance that I read was 18 miles. The longest 
25 miles separated these two cities, and it was over hilly terrain, an elevation gain and change of 1,350 feet. Just to put that into our own context so we could kind of visualize that, uh, this church is about 21 miles away from the Knights Ferry Bridge, if you were to go to the east. Or for those more familiar with the West, about the same distance of 20 miles from this church to uh, Del Oso Pumpkin Patch, right on Highway 5 and 120. So again, imagine that distance of 20 miles and, and covering that by foot. That being close enough to say, I've got to make my way over there. And in that distance, although it's certainly not in the text, I couldn't help but imagine what that journey must have been like for that dad. Forgive me, Joanne, if I step out of your frame here for a little bit. I'll walk slowly so you can follow me. But, but imagine that walk, right? The dad's saying, okay, Jesus is in Galilee, so I better go and find him if I have hope. But should I be leaving my son right now? Maybe there's another doctor I can talk to. Maybe there's one more opportunity. But, but if I don't leave him, he's got no hope. We've talked to all of the doctors. We've done all of the things we could have thought of over there. So, so maybe Jesus is the only one I should go to. But, but do I need to go? What if I send a servant? But, but then he's not going to know who I am. And maybe he won't respond. And Yeah. And he kept the journey going. And you can imagine for 20 miles wrestling back and forth with those kinds of questions. And yet, moving forward in faith. Not having seen much of what Jesus was able to do yet so far. But thinking that this is the only place where I can go where I'm going to be able to find any hope. So after that some 20-mile journey by foot or by animal, he does make it to Cana, and he is able to find Jesus, and he brings his need to Jesus. This is the scene. This is the conflict that this story tells. But as soon as we are introduced to the conflict, we get this odd response from Jesus in verse 48. Jesus says... Unless you, and as I read it, I highlighted the fact that this is plural. He's not speaking just to this man as an individual, but he's generalizing by saying, unless you all see signs and wonders, you all will not believe. Not the kind of response the man was hoping for. It almost seems dismissive and uncaring for this man's struggle. It sounds like Jesus isn't going to do anything at all. Like this is a, a no. A, a question like why are you bothering me with this? Very similar to his response that he gave to his mother Mary. When she approached him. In that initial miracle at Cana. Of turning the water into wine. And as we wrestle with what Jesus is doing in this reply, I'll say more about this at the end of the message, but it begins to introduce a struggle that we're going to see throughout this book of John. We have learned that Jesus was growing in popularity and attention through that scene with John the Baptist, but 
what we keep learning is this struggle for, for why people are drawn to Jesus. And what we see Jesus lamenting here is what we see more and more of throughout this text is that there are many people who aren't interested in Jesus for who he is. They're not interested in finding out about who uh, this person that's doing this miracle is or how he has the authority to do them. They're just interested in the miracles themselves. They're following him to see. They're following him to get, to get healings and feedings and, and witness exorcisms, but have little interest in what those Miracles are pointing to as signs, signs that reveal about the person doing the miracles and not just done in and of themselves. And that only gets heightened by the fact that when he was in Samaria, in those outcasts from Jewish society that we looked at yesterday, those people didn't need signs and wonders and miracles. They believed Jesus' word for who he was. Only highlighting again what it said in John 1. He came to his own, but his own did not receive him. And that, as Jesus says, that a prophet is not received in his own hometown. That though they welcomed him, they were potentially welcoming him for the wrong reasons. For what they could get from him. And yet, despite Jesus kind of giving this chastisement in the presence of this man, this official is undeterred. And he continues to beg with Jesus, almost coming off as a command to Jesus as he would treat his other servants, saying, come down before my child dies. And in response to this, Jesus gives his own command. Go. Your son will live. And in many ways, that's the turning point of the text. Think about it. In all of that struggle, in all of that journey over those 20 miles and the things that were going through this official's head as he made there, what was he hoping to do? What had he had gone to get? He had gone to get Jesus. He needed to get this man to bring him to his son so that his son could be healed. And now Jesus is saying, I'm not going with you. In fact, Jesus isn't doing anything. He doesn't make a magic potion. He doesn't pull the man aside and, and say this prayer with him and a blessing over him. He doesn't wave his arms. All he does is say, go, your son will live. And so instead of getting what he wanted, which was Jesus, all he gets is that word. And the question is, is that enough? Will that be enough for the man to trust what Jesus had done? And in this particular context, we told that it was. We are told that the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. Now, apparently, he believed so much that he at least waited until the next day before he began his journey. But again, I can't help but imagine what that journey home must have looked like. The man, having gone to get Jesus, is on his way back, and he's thinking... 
Am I going back to find my son still ill? Or am I going to find him better? Should I, should I go back and push harder to get the man to come with? But he just said, go. So I'll go. But, but then what is my wife going to say? What, where is he? What did you do? You've been gone for two days. What, what did you accomplish? What did you get? I have nothing. So maybe I need to get more. And again, you can't help but wonder how much confidence he returned with and how much he was wrestling with those questions. But regardless, those questions were answered for him before he ever even makes it home. Along the journey, he sees his servants, and you know right away when he sees them that they're bringing one of two reports. Either you're wasting your time, get back home, your son is dead, or good things. And encouragingly, it's the second. His servants catch him and they say that he can return because his son is recovering. And right away, he wants to know, well, when did this happen? They tell him the fever broke right about one o'clock, the seventh hour. The man realizes, well, that was right when I was talking with Jesus. It strengthens the man's faith and his belief, leading to not only him trusting and believing in Jesus, but having the rest of his household do the same. But had Jesus really done anything? Was this just coincidental? Would you have been willing to just trust Jesus' word? And for me, in all of the things that I read and studied in the text, that becomes the fundamental question. But before we really address that and we turn to application, let me me highlight just a few things that I think we need to draw from this text. Uh, First of all, very briefly, it's once again wonderful to see another kind of person coming to Jesus with their need and having that need be met. Again, in the conversation with Nicodemus, we are told that God so loved the world that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. And here's another person from the world, another portion of society that comes to Jesus. And not only do we hear that testimony from John 3.16, but we are seeing again and again that Jesus is welcoming to whoever comes to him with their need. Not just particular people or particular portions of society. Another important thing to just highlight very briefly again is is once again, for the second story in a row, we see how faith quickly leads to evangelism. How when someone has this incredible encounter with Jesus and they understand him for who he is, they can't keep that to themselves, but they share it with others. We saw it with the Samaritan Roman going to her town and letting them know who Jesus was. And we see it in this man as he spreads this faith, this hope with the rest of his household. A story ends with believers in Jesus now being in royal positions in this thing, and and news of Jesus is growing. But on a deeper level, I think as we look to apply this text, we have to look at two areas, and one of them is to dig a little bit deeper into that statement from Jesus, unless you see signs and wonders 
you will not believe. And the lamentation that lies behind that statement. I don't very often like to borrow illustrations from other people, but there was one that I came across in a commentary that I thought I would share with us this morning. The author of that commentary writes, During my first semester in seminary, a professor told me a remarkable story from his early years as a pastor. A young woman had become critically ill, and her prognosis was grim. She would likely die within the year. Her family had a nominal commitment to the church, so the discussions in the hospital between this young pastor and this family always plowed new ground. The woman challenged him. If Jesus healed in the Bible, he should be able to heal me today. If not, what use was he? So she prayed. The pastor prayed. The whole family prayed and pleaded and begged and bargained. If God would only show mercy, the family urged, they would completely recommit themselves and come to church every Sunday. This earnest young pastor prayed with all his heart. He refused to join the ranks of those who said, if this is thy will, it was God's will that she should be healed. And as he concluded, then to his amazement, God healed her completely. And with the physician shaking their heads, she was sent home from the hospital. The next Sunday, her entire family was there in the front pew, dressed and sparkling. The young woman gave her testimony, praising God for his goodness. The following Sunday, the family was there again. In four weeks, it was only the woman and her husband. And after that, attendance was sporadic until they dropped into their previous pattern of hardly and only occasional worship. Before long, the woman rationalized the entire incident. She had experienced the most dramatic sign God could give her, healing, bathed in prayer, and surrounded by the church. But after only two months, its power dimmed to nothing. This is not to say that miraculous signs have no place in the ministry of the church, they do. But John 4, 43 through 54 suggests to us that they have a limited scope and usefulness. End quote. That story is told, and the reason why I share it is to illustrate what often happens with a faith that is grounded in what can I get from God. We all want miracles. We all want a, a Jesus that makes life better and easier. And if we can, and, and, and we do sometimes get frustrated when our prayers are not answered in the way that we want. If Jesus can't fix our lives, then why bother following him? And that's how many people approach faith. All of this is only worth it if we see its effects in our life or hopefully in the life to come. But in our text and in that story and often in life, what we realize is that those that pursue Jesus for their own gain find that that's not a great foundation for faith. 
then unless Jesus continues to prove himself over and over and over again in more and more dramatic of manners, then we think, well, I don't know if I can really trust him. Or I don't know if it's really worth it. Or if it really makes a difference in the end. Again, what we learned in John 3 was that Jesus was growing crowds, but Jesus wasn't looking for crowds. He was looking for believers. People that weren't pursuing him for what he could do for them, but were pursuing him for who he was. Why do we follow Jesus? Is it just what we can get from him? Or do we follow him, as we talked about last Sunday night, for who he is? For the fact that he alone, in and of his being, is worthy of our worship and our attention and our praise. And whether we get anything from him or not, he deserves everything from us. And so what Jesus is lamenting in this, that statement is that the foundation of those who just pursue Jesus for what they can get from him is not a true foundation of faith. In fact, as the story that I read reveals, oftentimes people can turn to Jesus and get what they want, and even then, their trust in him can quickly fade. But as much as I highlight that, and this is the struggle I've had all week long, is you don't want to overstate that either. Because this man did have a need, and he did go to Jesus with it, and Jesus did respond. That though Jesus lamented the need for these miracles to be given, Jesus was still willing to give this miracle to this man. And that's the other side of the coin of what I just said. You see, as much as we shouldn't pursue Jesus for the benefits that we gain, the reality is that when we do pursue a relationship with Jesus, when we do turn to him, and when we do go to him in faith, what we find over and over again is that God, through Jesus, does bless us. He does answer our prayers. He does still perform miracles to this very day. He does promise us the hope of eternal life in him. Because that's who our God is. And that's where I see in this story a revelation of what true faith looks like. Because, unfortunately, oftentimes there is that struggle. As I mentioned, do we take Jesus at his word? Do we trust what he says, or does he have to prove himself worthy of our trust? And I mention that because oftentimes, even as Christians, that's how we can approach God, especially in our culture. We hear God's word that says, this. But then we look at that and we, even as Christians, could say, okay, but why would God say that? That that is necessary or that that's right or that that's wrong. Prove it to me. Show me something that's going to make me understand and accept that that's why your word is trustworthy and should be obeyed. Because unless you, God, justify that word, I don't think it applies to me. And I'm going to choose to ignore it 
unless you do something grand to prove that I have to trust that word. That's not true faith. That is a faith that turns God into someone that has to be our servant rather than us trusting his word and being his servant. True faith, as exposed in this text, doesn't just pursue Jesus for selfish gain. True faith doesn't ask God to justify his words to us. True faith is a faith that comes by hearing. It is a faith that is what we hope for and is certain of what we do not see. It is a faith that is blessed that even in not seeing, we still believe. True faith surrenders to Jesus as God and takes him at his word, believing that when he says it, it is true. And so again, we have both sides of those coins. Who is this Jesus? He is the only one that can turn your life around. He is the only one that can bring you into a restored relationship with Jesus, with, with, with the Father, through his sacrifice. And how do we know that? Because he said so. Because his word can be believed. Because he can be trusted. And so the invitation is again, go to him. Believe and trust in his word, not because he's proved himself worthy of that, but because he said it and he is God. Toward that end, let's have a word of prayer. Lord God and Heavenly Father, we live in a culture, in a world that has taught us to be skeptical, to ask questions. And to force people to prove through evidence and activity that their word is trustworthy. And Lord, we are an arrogant people that think that we in and of ourselves through our own power and in our own intellect can figure things out. In that, Lord, I pray first that we wouldn't pursue you just for what we can get from you but our relationship with you would be a genuine relationship where we understand who you are and we submit to you as the God that you've revealed yourself to be. And yet, as soon as I say that, I I also thank you for being a God who in his grace has condescended himself to prove yourself worthy. Worthy because of your faithfulness. Worthy because of the miracles that you have performed. Worthy because your word always can be trusted. Father, I pray that we indeed would trust your word. That when you say it is so, we would be your servants and believe it as such and live accordingly. Thank you for revealing yourself. Now may we go. Go and live and share the good news of what we've learned about you with others so that they too can find hope in you and your kingdom can be built and expanded on. I pray this all in Jesus' holy name.